We're in Genesis 8. It's another uh, pretty large chunk. Genesis 8 to 9, 17. We're looking at the flood waters subsiding and the covenant with God and Noah, God and man. Come on, let's, uh, let's read. We're starting in verse 1 of 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The foundation, the fountains of the deep and the waters of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters ceased from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest in the mount of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the, until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went out to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from, the, from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, and then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 600th year, in the first year, 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then the Lord said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast with creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to him, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every breed beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you, 
shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning. From every beast, I'll require it. And from man. From this fellow man, I will acquire a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his and to his sons with him, Behold, I have established my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, the, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out from the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I have established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from my waters of the flood, my waters of the, my waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all, all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Well, I don't know that I have to preach a sermon this morning. I think if you were really holding on to what we're saying in those songs that uh, you heard the sermon, so I might <laughs> just in case you didn't, I'll repeat what we've already been taught today. We over the past months have moved from the original uh, creation account to the fall, there's sin entering into the world breaking the relationship between God and man and causing, as sin increasingly spirals out of control, breakdown of relationship. Relationship between men and women, husband and wife, the family breakdown, society breakdown, and breakdown between the mighty men and those people that they exert authority over, basically governmental type breakdown. Every type of relationship is breaking down, Broken down because of sin. It's so bad that at the time of Noah, that God said that every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. The earth is filled with violence. Now, I know that many of us don't think that the world is in a very good place today, but I don't believe that we would say every intention of a man's heart is evil continually, that the earth is filled with violence. We can all see good intention with goodwill from a large proportion of people to other people, even though we hear about evil and violence every day. I don't believe that we can truly imagine what the world was like back then before the flood, and that is because God in his mercy has changed the world and he did it through judgment. His judgments came upon the world and each time they have come, they have been a mercy to mankind, being able to continue. God's judgment is one of mercy to mankind. 
was at the time of the flood and has been ever since. God raising up nations and casting nations down. He did this all through the Old Testament. Egypt, the Chaldeans, the Medes, he did it all through history, Rome, Greece, Persia, the Ottoman Empires. He's continuing to do it today. He raises up nations and individuals and he casts them down. It's all mercy and grace to the elect, to those who God has called to live in relationship with him. God has always wanted a people for himself, and we can be sure that nobody or anything is going to get in the way of that. Take the judgment that God pronounced even before the flood, that he would reduce man's lifespans for 120 years. Genesis 6.3. This is in the context of the so-called mighty men of old, men of renown, the sons of God, Nephilim. These were evil men of mighty power who rose up or raised up over their fellow mankind, and they did it as they pleased, riding roughshod over those who were under them. A sign of this was that they took any beautiful women that they desired. These were men of violence and evil intention. They were so powerful that nobody could stand against them. Nobody was able to resist them. We should be so grateful to God that he has reduced man's lifespan for 120 years, reducing the amount of violence that a single man can commit. Over the last 100 years, we have seen a number of evilly possessed men rise to positions of power and commit horrific violence. Under Hitler, over 7 million Jews were killed. Under Stalin and Pol Pot, millions of their own countrymen died. Hitler died at 56 years of age. Stalin at 75, Pol Pot at 72. How many people have died under King Jong-un in North Korea? He is 40 years of age. We have others in authority strutting the world stage today intent on the same thing. Genocide is opening and taking place in China, Myanmar, Syria, and other places throughout the earth. What violence would be occurring? How many of us would be dying if these guys lived to eight or nine hundred years of age? Now we begin to get an idea of what the world was like at the time of Noah. If men were living such long lives today, they would not just kill tens of millions of people, it would be hundreds of millions of people would be dying. Many of us here today would not be here if those lives continued much beyond 70 years, let alone 120 years. Oh, the mercy of God to reduce man's lifespan in judgment. It was so bad that God didn't stop at reducing man's lifespan, but because all flesh was corrupted, God would blot out all wickedly sinful flesh that existed on earth. Genesis 6.12. We looked at that last week. God's intervention with the flood is a mercy to bring another abrupt halt to man's kind's continual descent into evil. The flood is not a vengeful act by a fickle God. God is acting to restore the good back to his original creation, and in doing so, pouring out wrath, his wrath, upon the wicked. 
It's just and right. God created the world as a place where mankind could flourish. But the evil and violence at the time of Noah was destroying mankind and it grieved God. God was committed to the good of his creation. Remember, he looked at it and he said it was good. It was very good. He's committed to that goodness. And so he, through Noah and his family, puts back, puts them back into a recreated world. That world is cleansed from the effects of sin which have been totally out of control. We know that Noah and his family will again begin to spread effects of sin as it's passed down to them through Adam before we church. And they have inherited that. But God has limited, greatly limited the effects that each individual sinful man can have on other people. Or nations, and he did that through judgment. What we should be beginning to understand is that judgment limits sin, but it doesn't stop sin. So, what ultimately was achieved by the blood? What was achieved by the blood? Well, we all know if we're Christians that the Bible is a unified story points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the story of the flood and the ark does exactly that. So let's track through the story a bit and see how it unfolds. Moses actually writes this flood narrative in a very interesting way. He uses literary technique to point out what the main point is that he wants to be emphasised. So if we go back to chapter 7, verse 4, and again in verse 10, God says, in seven days he will send the rain upon the earth. Noah, his family, and all the animals go into the ark, and the rain comes. Not only that, but the depths are opened up, and the water floods up onto the earth. In 7, 12, and 17, we are told that the rain falls on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. In 7.24, we're told that the waters prevail upon the earth for 150 days. When we get to verse 3 of our reading, chapter 8, verse 3, we begin to see those numbers again. But now they are in a reverse order. At the end of another 150 days, the waters had evaporated. Then in chapter 8, verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened up the windows and sent forth the raven. And then in verses 8 and 12, it speaks about twice of how Noah, after seven days, sent out a dove. The important thing that these ascending and descending numbers mean is that where they meet in the middle is what Moses was most concerned to emphasize to us in this narrative. And as it would be, that's where our passage of scripture begins. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. This is what this literary style is trying to get us to focus on. God remembered Noah. God is the focus. God and his remembering. This is talking about the grace and the mercy of God. That's our focus 
of the flood story. Verse 1 continues, And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided, and the fountains of the deep, and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually, and at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. What God wants the Israelites and us to understand is that through this most severe reserved judgment that the world could ever know, the highlight of it is the mercy of God that he showed in saving Noah, his family, and the animals in the ark to continue his original purpose in creation. As Sam said last week, we've popularised Noah and the ark as a cute peace story. French artist, I can't pronounce his name, so I haven't included it, painted a picture of the flood. It was a solitary rock in a vast sea of surging waves. Three children were on that storm-lashed rock. Their parents were pictured sliding off the rock, and as they slid off, a crying push, a crying baby up to their three children. Bodies of men and animals all around them in the water. A tiger was poised above the children, higher up on the rock. And above that, a worn out vulture was certainly a children's story. Have we actually understood how horrifically extreme the judgment of God is? As we read about Noah and the Arctic, Understand how magnificent, radical God's mercy is. God's mercy. Just the way that the ark was constructed 100 cubits in length, 25 cubits in width, that's a 4 to 1 ratio. That's the most stable monopole structure to float on water. Remember, the ark has no means of propulsion, it has no means to steer it. It was full of animals. It needed to be stable. The whole time, Noah and his family and the animals were in that ark. They were subjected to whatever raves about them. They had no control over anything in any way. They surged backwards and forth through the flood and the storm. And then we have Genesis 8:1. But God remembered Noah. These are such amazing words. There should be such words of encouragement to each one of us. Now, it's not like God had forgotten Noah, and here we are six months into the flood, and God has gone, Oh, I wonder where Noah is. And he scans the earth, is the ark even a flood? We have experienced a couple of weeks of flood and devastation, and devastation that it's caused. We've seen the grief and the loss that people have suffered and experienced. That's just a drop in the bucket in comparison to what Noah and all in the ark were experiencing. Last week, Shem took us to Psalm 29, and we saw in verse 3 the voice of the Lord is over the waters. That the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. And then in verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord's Sitting throne forever. Not only was God supremely sovereign in pouring out judgment, 
but he was also supremely sovereign in watching over that frail little vessel in the midst of this catastrophic outpouring of his justly preserved wrath. At the same time, his mercy is protecting all through the fire. Chemist saying, God is the hero of the story. Do you realize that? Do we realize this in our own lives, in what is happening all around us? God is in control of everything that occurs around us and happens to us. Act one, it continues on. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. This story we're reading is of God recreating the world. Last week we saw him destroying the world. This week he is recreating the world. In Genesis chapter 1, that creation account, Moses used a different literary technique to focus our attention on the main emphasis of that passage. What he does is he bookends the story with what the focus is. First again is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This hovering of the Spirit of God over the waters gives us a view of God in, in holding anticipation of what is about to create. The other again, Genesis 2.2, says, and God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from the work that he had done. This gives us a view of God in holding satisfaction, settling back to enjoy all that he had done. God saw everything that he had done and behold, it is very good. Once again, Moses wants us to read this account and to be focused on God and what he's done. God's recreation of the world in chapter 8, and we're just going to skim through this has a number of parallels with his original creation. The word for wind here in chapter 8, verse 1, that blows over the earth and causes the waters to subside, is the same word for spirit that was hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1, verse 2. The same creative force of God is active in both accounts. In our passage, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed and the waters receded. This is similar to day two of creation where God separates the waters into those that are above and those that are beneath, creating an expanse in the middle, a sky in between. In our reading today, verses 3, 4 and 5, the waters of eight, the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat and eventually the mountain is this is similar to day three of creation, where the waters under the heaven were gathered together and dry land appears. And then God causes vegetation to sprout forth. On the fifth day of creation, God causes birds to fly over earth across the expanse of the heavens. And that's what Noah does in sending out the raven and the doves into the sky to find evidence of vegetation, indicating that the world is habitable again. And in Genesis 8.13, Noah removes this covering from the ark and dry land is seen. And God says, go out with your family and take all the animals with you so that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and modify. 
This echoes what God said in Genesis chapter 1 on the sixth day of creation, after he created mankind. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Much of the new recreation was the same as the original creation, but there are some significant differences. Besides the shortening of the man's lifespan, which we'll look at in a moment. Before we leave this actual flood part of the account, I want to look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and how he compares Noah and his family successfully coming through the flood of baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, he says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, people can read this, and they have, as baptism saves you. They would probably be the same people who would say that Noah will build an ark and save himself and his family from all the animals. They focus on Noah and what he did, and they focus on themselves and what they do. Oh, I've been baptised. But Peter says, this is not the removal of dirt from the body. This is not about some physical act. This is about a spiritual appeal to God. They miss the point that this is about God and what he's done. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is. Noah and his family were delivered by God's provision of the ark from his judgment and wrath in this totally devastating flood. Their old life in that corrupt, sin-sick world full of violence and continual evil intention was now gone. They were getting a new start to a new life in a newly created world. By believing God, by obeying God, Noah built the ark to God's design, God's way, and God protected him and his family in it. Noah's obedience to God in doing all that God told him to do was an outworking of his faith. It was him living by faith. Now we all say that after faith, but do you live by faith? Our obedience to God is expressed through baptism as an outward confession that we believe God and the deliverance that He provides for us in His Son, Lord Jesus. Going through the waters in baptism speaks of us being united to Christ in His death and then rising up with the, in the resurrection of Jesus. We are saying we have died with Christ. Our old worldly life is gone. And being raised with him in his resurrection, we have a new life as citizens of heaven, not as citizens of this sin-sick world in which we live. While we live in this world, we look to God to keep us and to protect us, just like Noah and his family and the animals were totally reliant upon God and the ark. We are totally reliant upon God and the Lord Jesus Christ to keep us. We are totally reliant on what the God and the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Without God, no, we would not have achieved anything. He would have 
perished with the unbelievers. He would not build an ark, not save his family, not get into his family. Without us being united to Christ in his death and resurrection, baptism means nothing. It doesn't save you. Baptism is not about what you have done. It's not about you. It's all about God and what he has done. Just as God's provision of the ark saved Noah from the flood, God's wrath, sorry, just as God's provision of the ark saved Noah from the flood, God's wrath, it is the Lord Jesus Christ and the provision of his righteousness which covers us, that saves us and protects us from God's wrath. Christ's righteousness saves us here and now in this world and at the end of time. On that great and terrible day, the final judgment, it will save us then. Baptism is a profession of that. Jesus did something that Noah did not do. He did something that Noah could not do. When Noah and his family stepped out of that ark on the right hand, that well, the problem of sin remained. He and his family still had the fallen nature of Adam in them. It had not been dealt with by Noah. It could not be dealt with by Noah. Jesus, like Noah, endured the flood waters of God's wrath. Unlike Noah, Jesus died, absorbing all the wrath of God for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the price finally forever for all those who were united to him. He could do it because he didn't have the fallen nature of animals in him. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Dealing with sin is not just about receiving forgiveness for our sin. Dealing with sin is about destroying sin altogether. Jesus broke the power of sin in a believer's life. Do you know that? Is that your experience? Our old worldly life is gone. We're not living the old way anymore. Day by day, our desires, our loves, our motivations, our life practices are less and less about us and the world and more and more about God and his kingdom. The fallen nature of Adam is fading from us. The image of the Lord Jesus Christ is becoming more and more strongly upon us. The big difference between us and Noah's family is that we are not just saved from God's wrath and put into the remade world to start again, but we are saved from God's wrath from all of our sin, past, present, and future, because the Lord Jesus Christ bore it all for us and paid the price for it by his death. Not only that, not only only that, we are just not pumped down back into a remade world again. Peter speaking about the baptism says it saves you through the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rising from the dead showed that he had totally conquered sin and death. Jesus doesn't just restrain the effects of sin upon us, he conquers it. Baptism is professional all that, that we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And this means, as Paul says in 1 Colossians 1.13, that 
you've been transformed or transferred out of the kingdom of darkness where you're under the dominion of Satan and sin and bondage and death and you're transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. You're in a totally different place. It's an inheritance of right, freedom and life. The power of sin is broken. We now live a new life empowered by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Noah and his family, when they came out of the ark, they continued in the old ways. And we begin to read that sin soon spiraled out of control again. It was more constrained by their shortened years, but out of control, nevertheless. God puts judgment before us to challenge our minds. Most people dismiss the judgment of God. Some people develop a fear of it. And yeah, sure, that's God's intention. We may then decide, oh, I might change my simple ways. What we find is we can't. Sin is too powerful in us. We're overwhelmed by it. Something else has to happen. We can't do it. That's what God wants us to know. We are hopeless and helpless in fighting against sin. Adam's fallen nature reigns within us. The other thing that God wants us to know is he has done it. He, through his sons, the Lord Jesus Christ, the pain and death, did what no one else could do. He broke the power of sin. He smashed it out of the ballpark. The power of sin is gone. We just have to stop making it all about ourselves and what we do and let it be all about God and what he has done for us. How do you do that? Well, you ask him to do it. You say, make me see, Lord Jesus, that this is all about you as the Bible was trying to tell me. I believe, Lord, put my unbelief. The fact is that believers have been totally changed, born again by the Spirit of God. Since power is broken in our lives, because the Holy Spirit is now dwelling in us, working in us, sin is overcoming us by God's power, His Spirit in us. This is the same Spirit, the same creative force that God made for the world and then remade it. It is now at work in you. Imagine that. If you're a believer, sin's power within you is broken. You cannot stand against the mighty creative power of God. Believe it. Live it. Sin will no longer spiral out of control in your life. God is the only Over the mercy of God in judgment. In judgment for his own son for our sin. Where the fight against sin in our own strength was totally hopeless, failure, just failing and failing and failing again and again and again, we now find that sin is often slowly, but sometimes dramatically disappearing from our life. Have you experienced that? Some of the sins disappear from your life. You don't know. Man, what that As we surrender to turn them more and more. God, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, making us more like God, more holy. In Jesus' death upon the cross, that is where he removes Satan's head. Jesus has constrained Satan, even for that for those who are not 
and in the time postponed. The message for us all is, all of us are is, what have we to fear? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who gave up his own son for us, will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, nobody. Neither death, nor life, angels, rules, things present, things past, powers, life, death, nothing in creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The first thing that Noah does when he sets foot on dry land is he offers up a sacrifice to God in thankfulness and praise. Is that our reaction? What should our reaction be? God has done so much for us. The offering up of some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird is not some small token acknowledgement to God and his goodness to them. It is some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. Even with his sons to help Noah, this is an undertaking of some magnitude. When we read of some of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the practical carrying out of these sacrifices, I can tell you as a boy from the bush, there would have been rivers of blood and mountains of guts. You kill and lead an animal, you skin it, you gut it, you've got yourself a pretty big mess. It takes a lot to clean it up, particularly in the larger animal. One of every type of clean animal, that is some. What do we commit to God to show our thankfulness for what He has done for us? The Bible tells us that nothing less than your whole life is sufficient. Of course, all these sacrifices they speak of the once for all sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ made for us. That abattoir, charnel house horror that bloody sacrifices inflict upon our modern sensibilities is nothing compared to the horror of what God demanded of his own son to pay for our sins in his death upon the cross. Jesus, the son of God, God made flesh, gave his life for us. And we're reluctant to give up our life for him. We want to continue our simple pursuit of our lusts and desires. They mean more than what he does. The aroma of Noah's burnt offering was pleasing to God. Just as God was pleased with the perfection of his son's offering for him on our behalf. God makes a promise that he will never curse the ground again because of man. The original curse remains that man must earn his living by the sweat of his brow and hard toil, wrath and weeds. The reason he won't curse the ground again or more is because the intention of the man's heart is evil from its youth. God here is acknowledging that the human nature has not been changed by the flood. God is stating that he will not respond to human sinfulness again by striking down all living things as he did with the flood. As we said, Judgment on its own does not fix the problem of sin. God knew it, and he wants us to know it. This should be a comfort to us as we progress through the Bible and leave us intrigued as to how will God deal with human sinfulness? 
While the earth remains, the general order of seasons will continue. No problems are devastation on the earth. We do see local disruptions to the seasons, and God has used this all through the history of Israel as a judgment to bring his people to cry out to him, come back to him, sending blood and famine and fire upon them. God holds back the rains, he pours out floods, he sends lightning to set fast swaying for the countryside Like we've seen that. God does it. I'll let you decide what you think about the disruption that's happened to the seasons over the past few years, over these last weeks. Do you slate that all time to climate change? Or do you see God behind everything that happens? Read Matthew 24 about the signs at the end of the age. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 6 and 7 that the world that then existed was deluged from water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that are now existed are stored up by being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God not judging the world again by water is not saying the world will not be judged. The whole teaching of the Bible is that the coming judgment is by fire. Judgment by water was absolutely horrifying. What is judgment by fire going to be like? With flood, we in Australia have missed that. We've also seen an uncontrolled horror of fire. Unlike the flood, however, judgment by fire won't end. Won't give you some of the respite. It is eternal fire or eternal punishment. I hope this is focusing your mind a little bit. You think this might be serious? Or are you going to be like the people of Noah's day? Dismissive? Go on eating and drinking and doing business, buying, selling, getting married, having a good time? They all perish. Chapter 9, we're going to skim through this a bit faster. God's blessing is still on mankind. He tells Noah and his family to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth. We saw earlier that there was a difference between the original creation and this recreation. One was the short lifespan. Here is another. Fear and dread now come between mankind and the animals. The sinfulness of man has now caused a general breakdown between the relationship of mankind and animals. The conditions on earth continue to deteriorate from that which was experienced in the Garden of Eden. Conditions on earth had so dramatically changed that now God, who in his original creation, had given man every paint he ever seen. The fruits of trees you can see now gives them every moving thing that has life in it as food. Animal, fish, bird life. If you're really desperate, creeping things, bugs. These changed conditions from the upheaval of the climate, the food from plants was not so prolific anymore. Overcoming that scarcity would not, uh, could only come about by God endorsing animals as and that became another reason why animals began to dread their relationship with mankind. The only stipulation was that the animal's blood was to be drained from its flesh. Now, this may have been to distinguish man from the animals. When one animal eats another animal, it is very savage, and they are consumed with their blood. It's still in them. Life is in the blood. Often, animals eat other animals alive. Now, that's a very brutal, violent way to die. That is the same type of brutal violence that God wiped out from the earth with the flood. 
If you're a vegetarian, you might consider draining the blood from the life of an animal before eating it, still violent or brutal. But it is much more constrained, deliberate, less satisfied, more humane, and being torn from limb to limb with animals do to each other. The other thing is that the purposeful draining of blood from an animal speaks of sacrifice. The animal's life is sacrificed for the good of mankind. All sacrifice speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ and his ultimate once for all sacrifice on the cross when he shed his blood for us. The whole teaching of the sacrificial system is that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus shed his blood so that we might know that there is no peace between us and God. Blood is sacred to God. He cried out from the ground when he came and killed Abel. He cried out for vengeance. Christ's blood speaks of forgiveness and its sins have been atoned for. The mercy of God. When we eat food, it's something that we should thank God for. It is his great gracious provision for us, whether it's from plants or animals. We should think our loving and merciful God to us. If an animal or another man should shed the blood of a man, then that animal's blood or that man's blood is also to be shed under God's judicial authority. This might seem again to be pretty harsh, but in a judicial manner, to take the life of a killer, whether it's a man or an animal, is another way of constraining violence on the earth. Animals or men who kill once are more likely to kill again or to kill multiple times. This again is a mercy of God in action through judgment. It also shows that God holds mankind made in his image high above the whole of the rest of creation. Even though that image is marvelously faced, then even though he behaves like an animal, sometimes he's not an animal, and God will hold him accountable for his life and his actions. Verse 17 speaks about God establishing a covenant mankind and with every creature that came out of the ark. This is God's first covenant with all living things. Covenants are very important and as we move through Genesis we will see more with Abraham, Moses, later in the Old Testament with David. I'm not going to do this in depth obviously. Covenants were agreements made between two people or, or between a ruler and his people. God makes this one between himself and all living things. Generally, covenants have the form of, I undertake to do this for you, but you have to do this for me. They're two-sided affairs. If one person doesn't do what they promise to do, the other party is not obliged to do it either, or the one who fails is subject to a penalty. This covenant that God makes is all one-sided. It is all about God and what he promises to do for all living things. His promise is in verse 11. Never again shall flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, and never again shall be the flood to destroy the earth. Verse 13 tells us that a rainbow is a sign in the sky to remind God of that. Hopefully, it reminds us of it too. The thing we notice about this is that it's one sided agreement. Nothing is asked of mankind or of all other living things. This again is the mercy of God. God is not going to let some foolish, sinful mankind or any other thing mess up his original purpose. God's original purpose was to have a people for himself. God is committed to do this. What do we have to do for it? 
God is leaving nothing to us or to any other part of what he has created in this. He is going to do it for himself. That's what this covenant is about. And God pays the penalty for the fact that we can't do anything. The penalty, once again, is Jesus dying in our place. People make much of Noah and the fact that he was a great man of faith. They zero in on his unfolding faith and make this whole story be about him. Noah's great faith can't be denied. It's right through that story. He believed God and spent 120 years building a boat. He's an amazing achievement. Especially considering the fact that all the time he's doing it, he's also preaching to the people that they are to abandon their wicked ways, to repent, believe God. If they don't, God will come and pour out catastrophic judgment upon them. And all they do is do your not. It's extremely hard to persevere under such circumstances. How patient Noah was for all those years of his life. Yet not one person that he ministered to outside his immediate family ever came to faith. How dispiriting that must have been. Many of the men's ministers ends after a few years getting no results. 120 years, that's knocking yourself out. Noah's great faith is not in dispute. What is disputed is where the credit for his faith goes. Making it about him is not to understand the story, but the whole story <laughs> in the Bible. Ephesians 2 says, hey, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. People say, I'm a good person. I'm a good man. I'm a good girl. That boasting doesn't cover with God. If that's how you think, you don't understand the Bible at all. Be sure of this, though. That where there is faith, there will be works of faith. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. They are God's works, God works in you, and he works through you. Before God can work through you, he has to work in you. If you have faith, it will be evident in your life. We can have a great head knowledge of the way of salvation. If it's, if it's not seen in the way we live our lives, head knowledge is just a learned thing. Faith is not about what's going on in your head, it's about what's going on in your heart. Jesus said, The issues of your life come out of your heart. What comes out of our hearts? What do we love? Now, we know heaps of stuff in our head. But what we do in our heart is a different matter. Knowing how we should be spiritually and actually living spiritually, two different things. We read about Noah, what we read about him is that he did all that God commanded him. This is repeated a few times through chapter 7. And Noah did all that God commanded him. Obedience is the mark of faith. To obedient, be obedient to God. Be that, we must know his word. Obedience is better than sacrifice. God came to hate Israel's 
sacrifice. They were going through the religious practices, offering sacrifices, but their hearts were far from him. God hates it. David says how he delights in God. He also says how he delights in the law of God, how he delights in the statutes of God. Is that how he actually delighting in God, delighting in his word? If you delight in God, you will delight in his word. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my heart. Is that true? Don't kid yourself, my friend. If you're not in God's word, regularly reading the Bible, you are lost. You don't know where you're going, and you're constantly stumbling and falling. David was a man that made many mistakes, committed a number of grave sins, adultery, murder, but he was a man after God's own heart. Sometimes can be grievous sin. But when convicted like David was, when challenged about his life by the prophet, he was convicted of his sins after the fall of his being, was quick to repent of his sins and turn back to God. The works of faith will be evident in your life. James says, show me a man's faith and I will show you his works. James is saying, if you have faith, then the work of faith will be plainly seen in you. Is that the case? When people look at us, what do they see? Works of faith or works of the flesh? They're very different things from each other. Serving God is a result. When we are challenged by a godly brother or sister because of what they see or don't see in us, are we defensive, self-righteous, justifying our failings? And our sins, excusing them? Stubbornly refusing to listen? What right have they got to judge me? Look at them, we say. The reality is, God is extending his mercy to us through the brother or sister who loves us. Just like God did through the prophet Nathan today. Are we going to listen to them like David did? Or are we going to contemptuously dismiss God's mercy to us? God brings judgment, rebuke, whatever you want to call it, into our lives now so that we won't be under his judgment at any time. Judgment here and now in this life is God showing us mercy. David was challenged by God through Nathan, who listened, was convicted, and he had it. 2,000 years ago, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. But better to be judged now while we can repent than on that last day when we will be condemned. Over the mercy of God in judgment. Praising for preachers, for pastors, for brothers and sisters who not only encourage us and edify us, but be Peter goes on saying, if judgment begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous are scarcely saved, scarcely saved, the righteous, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Preachers are called to preach the judgment of God. The only way that you can escape it is to the do we know the mercy of God? Do we know the Lord Jesus Christ? Or have we, or have we just heard of him? I love what James says. James says, tonight, I have heard of you in the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, 
Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and flesh. Have you only just heard of God? Or have you seen him in your lives? That's what the Bible is telling you to do. She's trying to get you to see God. You've got to be ready to see God. If you have seen God as he truly is, you will know what it is to be humble in the dust by Job despising himself. That's where the cancer starts. That's where the relationship with God begins. No one walked with God. Do we walk with God? Let's pray. Precious Lord, we just come before you after going through a long portion of scripture. And we pray, Lord, that you truly focus our minds on all the things, Lord, in this passage, which are important. Because, Lord, not to leave here today without desiring to have a proper, true relationship with you, Lord. Not one that is just in word, but relationship, Lord, that is indeed. Have mercy, Lord, upon us and by your spirit. Draw us to you, work in your work of grace and mercy. And change us, Lord, people. Give us, Lord, for being so stubborn and so resentful and so hard to change that we have loved our sins, loved our lusts and desires more than we have loved your precious Son. Make the Lord Jesus Christ precious to us. Hold him up before our eyes so that we might be seen as he is. We ask him in Jesus' name.